0: Hi everyone. Before we begin, I wanted to say a big thank you for being here today and listening to the show. If you'd like to support Behind the Smile, you can do so by following this podcast and leaving a five-star review. Every rating and review helps this podcast to grow, meaning more people can discover these stories and find hope along their own journey. If you'd like to check out this week's Behind the Smile photo, head to ashbutters.com where you'll find all of the episode show notes. And with that, let's kick off this week's episode. Welcome to Behind the Smile with Ash Butters, a podcast designed to reveal the truth behind the masks we wear. Together, we look to demystify the human mind and its behaviours in relation to mental health, trauma and addiction. My name's Ash and I'll be your host as we uncover the real stories of people's pain and the steps they've taken to live a life of freedom in recovery. From sobriety to spirituality, join me each week as we uncover the reasons why people seek recovery and how their lives have changed by living one day at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Smile. Today's guest is Justine Whitchurch. Justine is a 50-year-old mum of two who has carved out a name for herself as a sobriety speaker, a fitness coach, and an author. Having been sober since the 13th of December 2013, Justine has created a full and happy life without alcohol and is passionate about promoting a booze-free lifestyle. In sharing her story, Justine is making her mess her message and hopes to be an example to others that life without the bottle is beautiful. And with that, I'd love to welcome Justine onto the show. Justine, welcome to Behind the Smile. How are you today? I'm
1: good, thank you. Wow, that was a superstars (laughs) welcome. Well deserved. I still still can't get past the 50 bit. It's not long ago I've turned 50 and honest to God, it's still hard to say. This is the first
0: time we're meeting in the flesh. You do not look 50.
1: Oh my gosh, you look incredible.
0: What a poster for sobriety. Thank you. Thank you. Amazing stuff. And now we're actually recording here in, on the sunny Gold Coast, which we is are. awesome. Thank you so much for joining me here in my hotel room on this Monday morning.
1: You're welcome.
0: righty, let's dive straight into our conversation today. For our listeners to have the opportunity to get to know you a little bit better, I'd like mm-hmm. to ask you some quick questions. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me, let's start off with where do you live? Mm-hmm. What does an average day look like? And what do you do for fun?
1: Okay. So I live on the Gold Coast. I'm a burly girl. So I went away for a long time and came back. Um, a day, what does a day look like for me? There's some routine in it um, and then there's a little bit of spontaneity, but generally wake up about 6, 6.30. If I can, I'll get down to the beach, have a walk, um, try and do a little bit of breath work before I get out of bed Coffee, <laughs> lots of coffee. Oh, yeah. There's the vice. Um, and, yeah, I, I do a ro- lot of writing, a lot of blogging um, and work with my clients during the day, always gym, generally four or five times a week. Um, yeah, I'm pretty a normal person, <laughs> mm, mm. really, between, in between work gigs.
0: Um, we were saying, weren't we, before we started recording, you actually spent – couple of decades living in Melbourne, which is where I'm from. Yeah. And I can't tell you how much I noticed it this morning. I got up at 6am and I took myself down to the beach and saw the beautiful sunrise and the warmth on my skin. And I just mm-hmm. thought, oh gosh, I think I need to move up
1: here. Yeah. yeah, It's a definite, it's a definite must. I think, you know, for me, as we did speak about just briefly beforehand, the the consistency of weather has a huge impact on the ongoing maintenance of my mental health. And then, you know, clearly that's my sobriety as well. So it's something that I know I can't uh, be away from for too long. I notice when I go back to Melbourne, I'm like, oh God, I love this. I love the the winter, the fashion and all that type of thing. And after about a week, I'm like, I'm ready to go back When you haven't
0: been able to leave the house because it hasn't stopped
1: (laughs) raining. This is true. This is true. This is true. What do I do for fun? Uh, You know what? I spend a lot of time Down down the beach or walking in nature, um, listening to music. I think the stuff that I never used to find, you know, I thought was boring, is fun for me now. So I can't say, you know, I don't jump out of planes, I don't do things like that. Um, But yeah, I think being around people and energy that's um, that feels wholesome and good and positive is fun. So Mm. so many things, so many things.
0: It's funny. Just before you got here, I was scrolling on Instagram as we do. Mm-hmm. And, and I just saw a quote from Stephen Bartlett, who I follow. He's got the diary of a CEO yeah. of a podcast. It's a phenomenal listen. And he actually just put up a post about fun and what we identify as fun and how it's really important not to let anybody else identify what fun looks like for you and I agree in sobriety fun for me looks really really different these days it's sometimes it's a quiet night at home with my partner it's playing some board games it's reading a great book like anything that in the past if you told me I was doing on a Saturday night I would have gone oh my god snooze
1: yeah I think fun fun is anything that brings you joy Mm. and you know last night I was in Brisbane and you know walking along the river with the sunset and I felt immense pleasure Mm. so that's fun.
0: Mm. I love that. (laughs) I
1: getting my cardio in at the same time but it does it definitely um, is something that's quite personal I think.
0: Yeah I couldn't agree more. All right let's dive into your photo today. So Mm -hmm. Justine I've asked you to bring in a photo from a time in your life where you were hiding behind a smile so you Mm -hmm. were presenting one version of yourself to the external world, but the reality was you were really struggling on the inside. Can mm-hmm. you describe for our listeners what am I looking at in this photo and what was going on for you at mm-hmm. that time in your life?
1: So that photo was 2011. That was Elwood Beach, actually. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So okay. it, <laughs> it was a um, somewhat – was it ridiculously – hot day it was at one of those atypical melbourne days that um you know it could be it was 38 degrees at one point and then 12 in, later in the afternoon but i had woken up that morning um that that was i was knee deep then in my addiction um you only know, have to look at the photo to see that i didn't look very well but i had woken up and i had my kids were a lot smaller i think they were probably around nine and six at the time And felt this obligation to get them down to the beach because it was a weekend and I was, you know, everything in my world at that time was purely for my children. Mm. Nothing for me. It was just about making sure they're okay. So I got up, took them down the beach. I was, it was horror mornings, you know, hungover as anything. I think I was hungover permanently at that point in time, probably was. And took them down the beach. But I was so, I remember watching them, in the sand and, you know, on the edge of the water and I hated who I was. Mm. I, I hated how I looked. You know, it was it, I was the heaviest, the most um, unkept I think I'd ever been. Mm. Um, I was so depressed and I was just there in the sand, in the water and I was, I can remember tears flowing, going, I just hate, I hate everything about where I am, who I am. But I adore these kids and, you know, I I think I popped a Xanax because I was hungover <laughs> and all I could think about at the same time is, is this immense, you know, pain was when can I have my next drink? Mm. So I was sitting on the beach watching my joyous children feeling absolutely miserable and Going, I just, I need I need to wash this all away. I just need more of my medication, which was alcohol at the time. Mm. And just looking at my watch, you know, when when can I have my next drink? And when am I going to be home so that I'm, you know, in mm. an environment where I can mm. and not put anyone at risk? Um, I just remember how, how sad I was. How sad I was about everything. Mm. How much I, I despised myself and who I'd become. And did you have...
0: Any idea at that time that the way that you were feeling was a result of your relationship with alcohol?
1: You know what? It's interesting because sometimes I can't distinguish what I knew then and I know now. Mm. It's it's a really weird thing. I think on a soul level, I probably did. I just did not know how to get out. Um, I don't think I complete what I didn't really have a strong correlation with at the time was that the, the alcohol was making the depression worse. Mm. Um, I just thought I was miserable. So, you know, I and and the only way I knew how to combat that and the anxiety was the alcohol. So, yeah. you know.
0: And is that what you mean by self-medicating? Can yeah. you extrapolate that for me?
1: Yeah, I wasn't... Um, I was not... You know, I was a social drinker, but I wasn't the life of the party. For me, my alcoholism was much more um situated around being at home and medicating and just numbing that type of thing which is why it became you know some it was very hidden in in the in the latter part but um i think it was well it was it was my medication i i wasn't on any you know i have really adverse effects to a lot of normal antidepressants so my doctors took me off everything and they had me on Xanax permanently to to deal with the anxiety. Wow. I think I was on Xanax for maybe four years, if not longer, um, which is highly addictive. Yeah, but you know what? It, I wasn't addicted to the Xanax. I only ever took the Xanax to take the edge off mm. my um, panic attacks or the hangover. Mm. It was not my drug of choice. Alcohol was. Yeah. It it was everything about alcohol um, for me was the answer to taking me away from my head, which is what I wanted.
0: Yeah, I actually have such a similar experience. When I I was, I was taking a lot of Valium towards yeah. the end of my drinking yeah. for, for similar reasons and I remember coming out of rehab and I still had sheets of Valium in the house and I had them there for months and months after because I, it wasn't even – like i just it wasn't tempting for me i wasn't mm-hmm. drawn to that however had alcohol been in the house like it would have been a really high risk for me so much so that i ended up holding on to those sheets for i think like a year and taking them down to melbourne and giving them to a friend like it was just bizarre but it's interesting isn't it it's i think when you when you have that relationship with alcohol it, that's your thing mm-hmm. it becomes like definitely the, the one thing that does what no, nothing else can do
1: yeah for, for sure and a uh, volume actually was what i was prescribed in the end as well once once so you know, doctors realise that Xanax isn't a great drug, <laughs> not that Valium's much better, um, but Valium was my same thing. And even now, I'm, I'm not medicated, but my GP, it, he knows. Like, I'm the same with Valium. I'm like, should I take it? No, I actually don't need it. And there's been times when I've absolutely needed it. And he said, can you please take it? And I'm like, oh, I don't know about that. It, I was never going to be addicted to it because mm. I, I didn't. it didn't do the same thing to me mm. as alcohol did. So mm. I could take it or leave it.
0: Mm. justine to understand that person that was in that cycle of addiction and was obviously using alcohol to to fill a void and to change the way you felt emotionally to understand her what do I need to know about your childhood
1: um undiagnosed obsessive compulsive disorder and and Mm. quite quite extreme general anxiety disorder but it was very 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 much well hidden because I don't have sexual anxiety mm. at all so the uh, it was the OCD was what you know back in back in the day so showing my age once again um you know some of the things and behaviors I had as a kid now I would be dragging my kids to a psychologist mm. because you know there was definite OCD traits
0: and what did that look
1: like um so you know I I I, oh, I was the the, the warrior kid, you know. I was always worrying about something, and I okay. So I th- I think general things were, you know, everything lined up in a row in my bedroom. Um, you know, behind be, every night before I went to bed, I kicked behind my door three times, and just to just to confirm that what. I couldn't see anything behind my door but what if I felt it with my foot? <laughs> I didn't trust my eyes so I'd kick behind my door three times and then I'd you know pull it to if it was a bad day I might have to do that 12 times before I could go to sleep. Um, I latched on to thoughts so I was always worrying. I'd wake up in the morning and my first thought was I can remember very clearly as a child what do I need to worry about today? Wow. So you know that's not ideal. Um And then you know that manifested into all sorts of things, but it was very much I'd latch onto a thought and couldn't let it go. And I remember, I remember maybe being about eight, and I said to you know I was in a panic, and you know Mum's like, "What's wrong? What's wrong?" And I said, "I'm scared that you won't that you're not going to be my mum in heaven." Mm. So it was just you know random things like that that just manifested. um, But I was very extroverted, so it was greatly hidden you know Mm. I was an entertainer I was you know I ended up being in the music industry so you know I was front and center when it came to being you know out there socially but it was the minute that I wasn't that my brain was going a million miles an hour.
0: Mm. Mm. I can really relate to (laughs) being a performer and in those moments your mind shutting off.
1: I loved it I actually felt, I still do, I felt the most free mm. when I was in there. It was like I could, I could, it wasn't an alter ego. I really still feel like it's the real me. Mm. Um, it's not a show. That is me. And that's me when I'm my, my most free. Right. I actually am more caged when I'm in my head.
0: It makes total sense. Yeah. And those signs of OCD in younger children, that can be a marker, can't it, for, mm. for mental health challenges yeah. later in life leading to addiction?
1: Definitely, because, you know, if you're worrying about things like that when you're that small, life only becomes more and more and more complicated and we have more reasons. You know, my OCD, you know, if well, clearly it's an OCD is an anxiety disorder, so the higher my general anxiety is, the worse my OCD is going to become. I know when, you know, now when I'm tired or a bit more overwhelmed or, or I'm more stressed than normal, the OCD kicks up a notch. Mm. So you've got to pull all you, – you, we only become more stressed as adults the more we have to, to manage. Absolutely. So – and unless you're hyper-aware of that, um, you know, and I have two, two adult children now and um, they're not, you know, adverse to these things either, it's – you – if you don't understand it, you know, in my situation it was, well, how do I escape it? Mm. Because I didn't have any other tools in my toolbox at that point in time and I didn't even really know. I actually wasn't formally diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder until 2019.
0: You're kidding I knew me. I had it.
1: I, I you know, always used to talk about it. But it was, you know, a proper formal do- diagnosis.
0: Wow. <laughs> so you just mentioned escapism. Mm. When did you first start escaping with alcohol?
1: Now, I do have a very distinct moment now. And I actually only revisited this in when I went to rehab. So that I was asked that question. And I remember, you know, as a teenager, I was probably quite normal with alcohol at, you know, at a party socially and that type of thing. But I was 19 and I'd been on and off with a boyfriend that was the love of my life apparently. Was at that age they are. Yeah yep. and he was he was it <laughs> and we um I was house sitting a family friend's um house and I was on my own and he'd we had a phone call um I was already in bed so it was quite late at night I would had a phone call and he'd said look we can't keep doing this and I remember I it was almost catatonic I, I walked to the hung up the phone it was on the wall <laughs> corded phone thank you <laughs> um i hung the phone back up on the wall and i went to the fridge and i grabbed uh stubby's beer and went back to bed and drank i was beside myself and i drank them until i felt nothing and could sleep mm. now i did not put 2 and 2 together then but now that i go back and i do a reconnaissance of of where i've been i would definitely say that was the first time that i used alcohol to medicate and I, I, I knew it had um, great purpose in taking my head to a place where I felt calm. Mm.
0: So that would have been the first time. And was that something in that moment that you thought, ah, I've, I've figured out the solution or I've found something that worked? Or like, how did your relationship with alcohol then sort of carry on over the next couple of decades? Yeah.
1: No, it's a sneaky bastard. Mm. That didn't. That definitely didn't do it. That was just like... It wasn't, there was no epiphany. It was just like, oh, yep, this works. But I definitely didn't, you know, have that kind of, um, I guess, confirmation that that would be my solution. So uh, the few years after that, it was actually quite sporadic. I didn't have um, long periods of time where I was heavily drinking. I knew, though, that I could definitely still kind of use it as a tool and I, I knew the impact that it could have in in getting me, you know, to that calm place again. Mm. Um, so I drank quite socially, I'm just thinking through my twenties. It wasn't that bad. I was in the music industry. I definitely did use it at times then when my anxiety <laughs> performance anxiety was, you mm. know, through the roof. Mm. And I I do recall at least one time where I nipped a little too many shots of vodka before I went on stage and then forgot all my words and oh. things like that. Yeah, that was not good. Um, so it was it was definitely, you know, utilised, mm. but it was not at, um, I would call, what I call my addict levels of um, consumption.
0: Mm. So it sounds like it was really progressive yep. in you because to hear you say that you were in, of all industries, the music industry, mm. which is so heavily surrounded with drugs and alcohol Mm -hmm. and yet it hadn't quite taken off in you at that point it's just it just highlights so beautifully how it really does to use your words sneak up on you Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) now Justine you identify publicly as having battled alcoholism and can I just say it is so refreshing to hear you say that particularly being a female I myself, part of the reason I created this podcast was to destigmatize that word. Mm-hmm. And I truly believe the only way we can do that is by talking about it and identifying with it. And I certainly identify as being an alcoholic in recovery, and I know you do too. So, firstly, I just want to say a big thank you for yeah. that. Tell me, what did the alcohol addiction look like for you?
1: Um. So, you know, varying degrees clearly with consumption. But it was, I definitely would say, especially in the in the latter years when I was, I would call, when I was right in my addiction, it was a psychological and a physical compulsion to drink whenever my anxiety was, you know, creeping high, low, whatever, it didn't really matter. It was, it took the edge off all of that the physical symptoms of anxiety as well, which I, I hated. Mm. I still hate. <laughs> somebody
0: t- who's never experienced anxiety, can you describe?
1: Yeah. Um, it's it, Sometimes it can be almost like out-of-body experience where your brain is just going a million miles an hour and you can't distinguish what's real and not, what's not real. For me physically, though, also I would have tremors, always have tremors, my heart would race. I would instantly have to run to the bathroom, um, you know, God knows, with my addiction in the end, with the, my alcohol consumption and anxiety, I literally was chained to a toilet. Mm. <laughs> it mm. was that diarrhoea just – was had diarrhoea for three years. Wow. Um, it, it definitely – it hit my gut instantly. So I'm a real – you know, that brain-gut connection, mm. that's me. I'm still like that now. If something's not right, it'll go straight to my gut.
0: Um, but I – You must have incredible intuition.
1: I do now. Yeah. And now. do you know what? I actually did before – And this is, you know, (laughs) it's been joked that I'm a white witch, but I'm so (laughs) in tune with where I'm at on a physical level and mental level now, it scares me sometimes. And I just think, gosh, I've missed out on so many years of of having that ability to to read myself. And even like, you know, I'm slightly off topic, but with hormones and Mm -hmm. women. Mm -hmm. I know now there's been times, you know, previously, like, in my cycle where I would I was I would I didn't even recognize at the time but where I would medicate with alcohol all the time and all I know now is where I was in my cycle that's just a peak in estrogen or this and I was like oh wow I was a lot more drunk at that period of time and now sober I look and I go okay why am I feeling like oh right that's where I am write it out a day later and I'm fine That's
0: it. We're so much more in tune to our own physical bodies and what we're going through emotionally as a result of that.
1: My head pings. It's that clear. And I love that. And I'm scared of not having that. So that can be um, a bit of an issue sometimes because, you know, I don't like to take any any medication at all. Mm. But, you know, for me, when I drank alcohol, though, for the longest time, I feel like the moment I had one, I physiologically needed more it wasn't it wasn't even a choice. It's like you have one, you know that you're gonna have another ten because your body needs it. And it sets off that phenomenon of craving, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember being out socially and, you know, having moderated my drinking, if there's such a thing. But (laughs) I can't I don't know, somehow I I managed to socially, I was never the the drunk out socially. Mm. But if I had not known that I could have alcohol the minute I got home I was in trouble because I needed to have more. I knew I needed more. I was more.
0: always thinking about that when I was out. So I'd be out with friends, physically present, but mentally, I'm thinking about what I've got at home. Do I have enough to pass out? And if I don't, where, what bottle shop's going to be open on the way home? Oh my
1: god, that's a hundred percent. And you go out for dinner and you look, I have look at the, the how much alcohol is on the table, and I'm like, that's not enough. Mm. There's not enough there. I'm going to have to find some elsewhere or have it hidden. And you know. Unfortunately, in, in the in the latter part of my drinking, that was it. I always had alcohol hidden so I could have that extra fix that I knew I was physically going to need. Mm,
0: mm. God, you're describing. It's mental. Yeah. <laughs> it's mental.
1: What a way to live, hey?
0: It's so sad, isn't it? And mm. just that feeling of not knowing how to get off yeah. the merry-go-round. Like it's,
1: And that was it. You know, when you asked that question, did I know – then that it was that bad yes but I had zero understanding of how I was ever going to live without alcohol how mm. could you live without alcohol mm. because that's the only thing apparently that's helping me survive and not but only it's killing that, me <laughs>
0: yeah and not only that it's everywhere mm. it's in every social situation it's used to celebrate to commiserate yeah. pretty much any day ending in why like that's yep the society that we live in today
1: Yes, definitely, and that's you know that is the challenge, and that's I guess that's where I'm the most vocal, um, in 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 the public spectrum because I I just it has to be easier for people to stop because we have an epidemic, and you know women men but it's it's just still so hard for somebody to go out there into society and not feel like a social leper Mm. um, if they don't drink. Mm.
0: So if you were sworn in as Prime Minister Mm. tomorrow, what would you do to change it?
1: That's a good question. Um, I probably don't have the answer in terms of structure but I definitely know that we have to from a very young age and um, I've definitely, most definitely, broken a cycle with my children Mm teach our kids that it's actually just as normal to not drink as it is to drink and I think the education with our young people really does need to lie around not using alcohol as a medication, as a form of medication and being able to separate what is fun and what is what is escapism mm. so you know my kids have grown up they're now 21 and 18 and I've been sober for nine and a half years so they're quite young and they don't thank god have a, a, an incredible amount of memories of me drinking and it was quite well hidden and you know covered up but in my house now it's normal not to drink mm. and my daughter she's t- she's 21 and I remember a couple of years ago she was going to a party so we have a very open communication about mental health and what we're doing and what the and you know they know my story um and I know that Evie said to me uh, she's going to a party and I said to her are you drinking tonight and she said no I'm feeling anxious so I'm not going to wow so (laughs) that must have been
0: a moment yeah because
1: they know she knows they all know that it's going to make them a thousand times worse it's a temporary fix and that there are we've got to give our kids tools to deal with life and stress alcohol's not the answer mm. although we've plugged it as it's still functioning in society as it is mm. you know mum to mum had a shit day with the kids you know you know whatever have you overwhelmed wine a Jump over mm. let's have a because that fixes everything
0: mm. it is isn't it and I I agree I think that we're not there yet in regards to being able to go out in a social situation and not drink without there being questions, why aren't you drinking? Yeah. And I know for me, it's been really interesting. I'm in my mid-thirties at the moment, and this yeah. has probably been happening for the last ten years. Are you pregnant?
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Maybe definitely, I'm just not drinking tonight. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. It's it. it well, that's it. It doesn't that just highlight how normalized it is mm. and how it's not you know I, I talk bang on about this all the time it's not just accepted it's expected yeah. so it's a completely different um we've got to change that narrative altogether but you know i think it's it it like comes down to education it comes down to providing people kids with tools to manage stress and anxiety um that are you know not through a bottle mm. I've heard a few
0: times now, and I it just really resonates for some reason, people are saying that alcohol is going through its cigarette season.
1: Yeah, I've and heard that. Yeah, I hope to God that's the case. Yeah. I really do. Um, yeah, I definitely, I think, so. you know, in terms of socially, I guess there's been quite uh, a development with a lot of the alcohol-free drinks. Mm. So socially you can go out and you, you are able to purchase something or, you know, have something in your hand. That's great. But we have to stop, we have to go back to the to the basics of, of you know, why do we feel n- it necessary to actually even have to do that? Totally. <laughs> I know that's... Because it's know. kind of a band-aid, like it's great that it's there. Yeah. But
0: you're right, like why is it actually even necessary?
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and look, I mean, depending on your level of addiction for me... Um, there's only certain alcohol-free drinks that I'll have because for me they're ma- a massive trigger. I was going to ask
0: what yeah. your stance was on that.
1: Yeah, look, I honestly, I think that there is – I think they're brilliant and there's a real market for it mm. and especially with people that are not necessarily, you know, well down the track that I was and they do want to drink. They love the tass- taste of alcohol and they want to go out socially and have something in their hand that's, you know, that resembles that. But for me – Personally, with my level of addiction, anything that tastes like alcohol is a trigger, and it's not a trigger to drink, but it's a trigger to a memory. You know, I'm past that mm. temptation part. I had a, a couple of sips of somebody's alcohol-free be- beer the other day, and I had to like do a double take because it tasted like beer, and I was it like, "Does
0: mm. uh,
1: no, I can't do this. Mm. I can't do this because as I don't, I had to completely in in rehab. <clears throat> it was actually discouraged. Mm. at my level of addiction
0: yeah likewise in the circles that I spend a lot of my recovery in they they recommend not to I personally I, ca- I can like I'll, I'll drink a Heineken zero which mm-hmm. is zero zero because mm-hmm. please remember guys a lot of those alcohol free drinks still have alcohol in them mm-hmm. at small percentages so I've tried those I don't I don't I'm, I'm okay I take it or leave it my partner's really not a fan so out of respect I don't drink them around him we don't have them in the house yeah um but but I I still can and I don't mind it but I just love what you said about how it may not necessarily trigger a craving to drink alcohol but it can still trigger you and then all of our other little process addictions can come out sideways can't they Mm -hmm.
1: yeah for sure for sure and it it um it actually took me back to t- a time and a place mm. and stuff that I don't need to revisit. Mm. So I think it probably does different things for different people, but it was an emotional trigger. And you know, I can I can sit here now and without having wine, I can taste wine. Mm. It's <laughs> it's so um, you know embedded in whatever you know psyche, senses I yeah. have, um, yeah, and the smell of it you know there's certain things i think you know it's different for everybody but for me it's not i i'm past the point of having that and wanting to have a drink it's it's what it does to me psychologically that's not necessarily a positive thing yeah
0: absolutely now you've touched a couple of times on the fact that you went to rehab so mm-hmm. can we go there now if that's okay yeah. for you i want to know what was the catalyst mm-hmm. but, and i was, was was that your final was that your end to drinking then no, and there not okay. quite
1: so it almost was. I um, I came, I was living in Melbourne and my family essentially scooped me back up to Queensland with my two kids at the time. And I don't, uh, they knew I was in a bad position, but not as bad as what I was. So it was highly encouraged by my doctors at the time that I went into a residential program and I bucked and kicked and screamed because I didn't want to leave my children. Mm. So I went into a day clinic uh, three days a week at Currumbin Psych Hospital and it was, um, you know, in conjunction with my doctors, I was on, you know, um, medicated with Valium, you know, to come down, Mm. do the whole withdrawal process. And I did the first eight weeks in there and there was so many – I'm a really visual, practical person and a lot of the ther- – all the cognitive stuff was super – it was like NLP. And, I, you know, I was a workplace trainer and assessor, so I knew a lot about that. So I needed to be able to visualise what my brain was doing mm. and why I was the way I was. And um, so I had eight weeks, three days a week in there and my family drove me in and picked me up so that I, I went otherwise. You know, I can guarantee you. There were times where I had snuck alcohol in the night before and sat in <laughs> the group therapy session dying, mm. um, you know, waiting for my volume to kick in so that I could participate. Um, so I did, actually did two eight-week blocks in there and I came out. It's really interesting. I stopped medicating with alcohol so I did not – I got myself to a place where I was – uh, physically, a lot better. I was, you know, clearly I I, I had a lot of work to do because I was in really bad shape physically. You know, I might live with showing signs of cirrhosis. I had a couple of episodes, I probably need to go back to that, just before I went into rehab, where I was found non responsive, ambulance to the hospital, point wow. three eight at nine o'clock in the morning. um So I had some really close calls. Mm. And there were times when I'd potentially mix the volume as well, unknowingly, with yeah. my alcohol. It was not as. A, It wasn't my drug of choice. Um, And, yeah, so they were the catalysts that put me in there. It was like you're actually – at one point in time, the doctor said to me, you you know, you've got months if you don't stop. So I was about 47 kilos. um, Alcohol replaced food. um, You know, my platelets were through the roof. Uh, Sorry, my platelets were really, really low. My triglycerides were super high, so I was at risk of a heart attack. Um, But, yeah, I was – I was awful I was black and blue Because my platelets were so low Every time I touched something I was bruising um, And I came out And I stopped Medicating I was in a different environment So I moved back up to Queensland I was in the sunshine mm. I lived near the beach um, And I guess At that point I definitely Did not think That I was Going to give up altogether I'll be Absolutely honest mm. I was coming out And I was I got on top of it mm-hmm. That was it I was going to be able to manage my alcohol so that I could still drink because I still didn't think that I could actually not live without it. Yeah. And not even live without it for the medicating but not live – then it became, oh, hang on, how can I actually – now how can I socialise without it? Uh, so I came out that first year and I drank on the odd occasion socially. Never ended well. It just never ended well. And the following year I drank on three occasions and I'd, I'd set myself up so that I drank every every 12 weeks. <laughs>
0: I love wow. the, con-
1: the control measures, <laughs> totally. the sh- the shit that you put around it. Like, and an the week before I decided I could have a drink, it was anxiety that whole week because mm. I'm like, oh, God, I don't want the hangover. I don't want this. I know what I'm going to do. Yeah. Just quickly,
0: it's really interesting. People often say to me, well, how do I know if I've got a problem with alcohol? And <laughs> I'm, I say, well, do you put in control boundaries. systems and yep. boundaries around your drinking? If they say yes, I'm yep. like, You've probably got an issue with your relationship with alcohol because normal drinkers just don't need to do that. No,
1: normal drinkers can take it or leave it. It's it's just not even it's not an issue, you know. Um, But yeah, well, and there's you know there's varying degrees. We know with whole grey area drinking, there's varying degrees of Of dependency. It's still dependency though. I've got to say that I'll bang on about that. Mm -hmm. If you are still putting boundaries around your drinking, there is a dependency on alcohol. I agree, (laughs) one hundred percent you know but yeah I mean everybody's got to walk their own walk don't they before Mm. they can get to that point but yeah I and it it wasn't until the last time that I drank um at a work Christmas party where I'd (laughs) I'd said right well I'm not going to drink at the dinner because I know if I start I still knew that physical thing if I if I drink at the dinner I'm going to be absolutely hammered by this time because I'll the compulsion will be there so I waited until we went out to the club and I think then when I got there I drank you know six or seven champagnes in an hour and a half and I was just gone. But that was the last time I drank. Oh my gosh.
0: <laughs> Justine <laughs> literally did the same thing. Really? <laughs> <laughs> my final Mike Bender, I'd been at work all day and was invited to work drinks and I chose not to go because I knew at that stage that I couldn't control my mm. behaviour once I started drinking. Got home, bought the bottle of wine on the way home and then look, everyone's heard the story. If you haven't, you can go back to the mm. previous episodes. But it was that whole idea of I'm going to control and moderate here. I'll let myself have a couple at the end, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't matter because once alcohol touches my lips, all bets are off.
1: Absolutely, it's gone. There is no, you know. How do you? It just, it just, it just. I guess it always um, confuses me how we are so in denial that alcohol is a an addictive substance. So it has. Those property, it does that to us. It's not a matter of willpower mm. because we're we're consuming something that's actually got a hold on us most of the time. Mm-hmm. It's not like you know how strong is your power of mind. For God's sakes, it's look at what you're what you're consuming. Exactly right. It's
0: doing exactly what it's designed to do. Correct. Yeah. Wow. So that was your final night drinking. Yeah. I imagine you weren't feeling great the next day.
1: <laughs> no. So the, I think the next day, yeah, was well, it was the next day that became the catalyst of not drinking.
0: And so what did that next 12 months look like? Because I know for me, like early recovery is tough. It's, mm. it's not easy. You're navigating everything for the first time. Life without alcohol can be really challenging, especially learning how to f- process those emotions and those feelings yeah. without that something to numb.
1: Yeah, I think in that previous in that year prior where I'd allow myself to drink on three occasions very early on in my recovery I was introduced to fitness which is something that I I wish that I'd had in my toolbox as a kid because that would have been my life would have been completely different um, and in that year I knew every time I drank it had I couldn't train the next day um, so fitness and health had become already become an integral part of my I guess, my, my maintenance, my recovery, and then my ongoing maintenance. And I, it's something that I just, you know, no matter who it is, if you are deciding to hang up your drinking boots, I say, put on your running shoes, Mm. hang up your drinking boots, put the running shoes on just for the moment. I, you know, I overtrained for a long time, but it didn't matter because I was doing something that was, you know, on a physiological level, good for me. Mm. Um, There was routine, there was discipline, all that type of thing. So, I then – I think I just, you know, filled my life with healthy fit things and living mo- having moved back to the Gold Coast, it was – it's such a way of life up here. It's early mornings, as we've just mm. mentioned. It's – you know, the sun is shining even in winter. You've got opportunity to get out there and, um, you know, enjoy nature and all those sorts of things. So I really did throw myself into that and, and family and – um, starting to take care of you know all of the things that I hadn't on a physical level as well
0: mm. were you doing anything like day counts or like yeah
1: so I still saw my psychologist for a good period of time but that tapered off as well I think at that time social media started to you know up its ante and there was a lot of opportunities to network with other other sober people or what I mean it's clearly it's it's different now but I started to see that but where I think I probably got my most um, benefit was when I started writing Mm. so I started blogging just general I was just back on then on Facebook and I started talking about when I was okay about talking about my level of dependency about how fitness was helping that and I found the more authentic I was and the more openly I wrote the more engagement I got and then I started getting messages from people saying oh my god I'm that's me or but the over the overwhelming theme was the messages were I don't know how to get out Mm. and you know I made a bit of a deal when I was on one of those emergency hospital beds with the big man upstairs I said look I don't I don't know what to do, I don't know, get me out of this and I'll do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to pay you back and I never knew what that looked like. I mean I was a corporate woman, I wasn't into fitness, I wasn't doing any of those things but when I started my fitness and then I started writing and all of a sudden these messages started coming through, it was instant, I knew there's your purpose, you've got to help other people, you've got to show that there is a way out. Mm. However, I didn't really know what that looked like in terms of structure then but it was, it was overwhelming that part of my own healing and my own staying sober, my own ongoing maintenance of my sobriety was through helping other people do the same thing. Mm. Yeah, I completely agree. It still is. Even when I feel like I'm not penetrating somewhere, mm. I, I, I'll I'll get um, a message or something and it's like a reminder. No, just stay on track. You're Keep on track.
0: Mm. Yeah. There's nothing... For, for me personally there's no better feeling in the world than helping another person step into this life yeah however totally. you do that you know whether it's through social media a podcast an interview a phone call
1: yeah like I would I would 100% agree 100% yeah. but they're all the things that keep me going because you know um, I'm an empath and I hate seeing other people in pain and when you know that when you know there is life and a beautiful life and a possible life on the other side, I don't see that I have any other choice but to show that and Mm. to demonstrate that. Mm. Mm.
0: You Mm. mentioned writing and that you Mm. fell into writing as a way of almost, I imagine it would have been like a kind of therapy for you and then that beautiful byproduct of being able to help other people. And you've recently re-released your memoir, which is titled Sobriety Delivered Everything Alcohol Promised. Can I just say I love the title, mm. <laughs> it really, it does, it encapsulates the reality yeah. of what's on offer here yeah. in sobriety. What what are those things for you? What's been delivered that alcohol promised?
1: Calm, mm. peace, clarity, um, the ability to make everything that I thought alcohol gave me. Well, it did for five seconds and that's about it. Um, I can manage my mental health. You know, I didn't think that that I could, I didn't think it possible. It's given me the ability to not just survive but to thrive. It that clarity of thought I can't I can't describe when your head pings and you know we're talking about being able to distinguish what's going on and being intuitive, that's it for me. It's it's given me the capacity to deal with life on such a much better le- level. Mm. Life is not you. Know, it's not linear. I get shit things. You know, I'm. <laughs> I'm just recently, you know, uh, earlier in the year, been separated and going mm. through. You know, also all, everything that goes with all of that type of thing. You know, it's my second time around. Mm. But I, I know, I have coped with it so much better. Last time I was not, you know, and I was well and truly not sober. um in fact I was probably starting to go knee deep in addiction this time around it's not a breeze but man I know I can deal with it I can deal with every single bit of it as long as I don't drink
0: what do you do in those moments those really really
1: painful moments I sit in it Mm. as shit as it is I, I sit in it um you know if I need to cry I'll cry I do reach out a lot more than what I did before. That's an interesting concept because, you know, people say, well, when you were drinking and things were really bad, why didn't you say anything? Well, because I don't want anyone to know because Mm. I want to keep doing it. (laughs) And it's the more, you know, you sit in your psychology sessions and I tell them what I want so that, you know, there's only a certain amount because I'm not going to reveal the whole thing because I still want to drink. Yes. So um, I didn't bear my full truth to anybody. And now I can, and now I can be vulnerable and know that I'm in a safe place. Um, and I, I keep up the, you know, those dark places I know more than ever right now how important it is for me to be sleeping well, to be exercising, to be making sure I'm, you know, eating regular regular meals and not skipping food and, you know, watching my nutrition. And all the self-care is way more important than, you know, than anything else. Mm. It's, you know, it's, it's what I use in ongoing sobriety is my maintenance is, is exactly what I do for my mental health.
0: Yeah. It's just almost like going back to basics, isn't it?
1: Oh, I actually say that. Go back to, my, go back to basics when I'm feeling not great. Back, basics, eat, sleep, exercise. Mm. That's it. And anything else that is um, not a, a prerequisite at that point in time has to get pulled back on.
0: I want to know if someone's listening today and the the idea of fitness, they're like, I'm just not, I'm not a sporty person or I, you know, the gym I get really intimidated by. Like what's some advice as a fitness coach as a way somebody can start to dip their toe into this
1: area? Yeah. I think that you need to, um, uh, look, I'm not going to say that there's, that I love it all the time. I think there is a certain amount of just going to take it on the chin because it's like taking a tablet. It's good for you at the time. But choose something that that you enjoy. Mm. So, you know, if that's walking for you, you know, I, I can tell you in, in the beginning before I started the gym, I just walked a million miles. I think no matter what you do, if you can walk and walk it's and so walk. It's so underrated, isn't oh it? Oh, man, just put your shoes on because you're also, you know, you, you're present generally when you're walking and i can remember the first few times when i was you know getting sober and walking i'm like oh i didn't know that house was there or that tree was there so there's distractions Sorry, right yeah. <laughs> i've only walked past it a thousand times <laughs> um i why i like the strength training and the gym is because uh, or anything that that pushes you increases your natural capacity to cope so I know for me that that correlation between good physical health and strong mental health was really reinforced in the beginning. You know, when I first started training, no matter, I guess no matter what it is for you, but for me, I started CrossFit, which I don't do now. But when I I found something that challenged me and all of a sudden I'm doing, I don't know, a hundred rope whips that I, I couldn't do two in in the beginning, I'm like, oh my God, it, the, the mental strength it took to do that I started thinking, if I couldn't do this before and I could control my body and my brain enough to do this 100 rope loops now, I can control or I can manage my brain when it's doing things I don't want it to do. Mm. So mm, it's, it's just, it's resilience. It increases your resilience. And we all need to have, you know, that, that stronger sense of resilience is what's going to stop us from dipping into waters that we shouldn't be.
0: Mm. And I think that you touched on as well, discipline.
1: Oh man, you know if you're an addict, or I just think anybody in who has mental health ongoing or underlying mental health conditions, we need structure. We need discipline. Mm. It's a it's a non negotiable.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, I know that for me, I've uh, being a type A perfectionist, I've Look. I've always been disciplined t- to an extent. I certainly wasn't disciplined in my the way i tried to manage my drinking yeah. that's where i fell fell apart but i know that it's held me in good stead in my recovery because yeah. there's things i just show up for every single day yeah in saying that though i allow myself grace and mm. if there is a day where you miss it yeah that's okay too but it's about being able to get really honest with yourself and you know if if one day turns into two days turns into three days yeah. to to be able to just have that very gentle loving conversation all right what's going on here? How can I get myself back on track? Because I know at the end of the day, this is going to make me feel better.
1: Yeah, 100%. And I think, I think to begin with, for those that haven't had um, exercise as a tool of, of coping with life before, such as myself, I needed enough time and I needed enough evidence to show that I felt better when mm. I did it. Mm. So I think that's, you know, for me, there are definitely days where I will you know, I, I'm very I'm very hard on myself and, and like you, I'll if I don't want to go to the gym or I'm not feeling like it, I'll say, okay, is this my do am I physically incapable of this? Do I really need a break or am I making an excuse for myself? <laughs> <laughs> and I usually know. Um, but I also know, okay, well if it's just because I'm just I'm feeling off and it's not the first thing that I want to do, I have evidence now that the minute I'm in there and I've trained, I feel better. Yeah. So I can draw on that.
0: Yeah, and it's consistency, right? Yeah. Like th- that. Yes, you'll feel better initially, but it's that showing up day after day consistently. When you start to see the results, yeah, that yeah, you get that real boost of confidence mm-hmm. and self esteem, and as mm-hmm. well, all of which is contributing to better mental health.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. And it's you know you're moving, you're cre- you're creating feel good hormones. So you're on a physiological level, you are technically, scientifically, creating happy, positive, you know, hormones that are doing nice things. Yes, all the endorphins, (laughs) all the serotonin. Yep, exactly, (laughs) exactly. There's not really a bad part about exercising really, is
0: there? No, not really. (laughs) I mean, anything can be overdone. Oh yeah, it can, it can, (laughs) it definitely can. With everything in life, of course. Justine, what's something that you wish you had known Or you wish you'd been told when you were still in that pre-contemplation stage?
1: Um, That it is definitely possible to have a full, happy, healthy, manageable life without alcohol. Amen. Just, I can't, that was it, you know. Honestly, that was and that you will manage, you know, the, the, I think the social part of it. Maybe I was slightly older as well. So, by the time I, you know, stopped drinking, I was 40, just after 40. And I wasn't out there. Mind you, I, people my age drink just in different capacities. In different totally. Cases. <laughs> but I can and I will manage my life. In fact, I'll manage it way better if I don't drink beautiful message because mm. it's scary it's scary to think you know I still I talk to people daily like but you know how but but how how do you live mm. and that's day, the frightening part Yeah. It's You're one, one day, day, day at time. a time <laughs> one minute at a time sometimes absolutely but it's possible and it's not just possible like it's funny because my dad's been sober for 36 years now i wow. think yeah yeah so he and he was a straightforward AA man, um, and when I was in the height of my addiction, it was, it was just just soul destroying for him. But he did mm. say to me when I was, you know, a few years before I stopped, he said to me, Justine, I know that I'll cope with anything in life as long as I don't drink. Mm. And I was like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Seriously, seriously, it was that mentality. I'm like, are you kidding? Mm. Doesn't make sense <laughs> it at the time, does it? No,
0: and then it didn't. You, and then it makes it makes all the sense crystal clear. Yeah, because that's it. At the end of the day, I like I know for me, and particularly in moments of grief and and difficult, challenging times, that in reintroducing alcohol into my life is only ever going to make things worse. Oh yeah, never better.
1: No, and it's funny you say that because that's I uh, you know. for me there's been the OCD will latch onto things okay but you're doing so well now but what if something happened that you know was just catastrophic and you know there has been things that thankfully you know uh, they're just life things but I've thought Mm. will I want to drink when that happens and it's interesting this far down the track for me there have been I couldn't think of anything worse mm. to do. And mm. it wasn't just knowing that. I actually physically thought I couldn't think of anything worse than not being having a modicum of control mm. at the moment. Mm. It's interesting then on the flip side,
0: isn't it, I was having a conversation with somebody just the other day about this is often the riskiest time and I'm speaking here specifically to people who identify as being alcoholics who are sober alcoholics, Mm -hmm. that the risk is actually not in the grief and and the trauma and the hard
1: times. It's when you start to feel so good Mm -hmm. that you forget. Oh yeah. You're a bit invincible. Mm. A hundred percent. Yeah, because I'm, oh, and we see that all the time. That's when people fall off the wagon the most. It's like, you know, I've gone a year um, now I'll just have, an, have a drink and because I'm okay with that. Yeah, and, you know, I, can't I can possibly be an
0: alcoholic because I haven't drunk for a year.
1: <laughs> I've seen it and most recently with somebody um, where they just were in a situation and they're like, it's been long enough now. It's been, you know, a couple of years. I can do this mm. and then catastrophic kind of, you know. Well, you go straight back to where you left off, right? Well, what makes you think that the way that you drank previously is going to be different to the way that you're going to drink now mm. what's different I mean okay you you, you may have you know, done some therapy correct or. or whatever but it's still the same poison that you're putting in you and yeah. I, that's where we still you know I've, I've mentioned it just before but it, it's still it's it's the it's the drug that you're putting in you that has a lot of the um impact on where you go with it mm. Mm. how do you control that you don't, because you <laughs> you're essentially drugging yourself. Yeah. You don't manage it.
0: Yeah, it's and it's just like whether or not you want to take that risk. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I am so sad that this conversation is coming to an oh end. I'm gosh. looking down at the clock, oh and I'm no. like, "This is just we is could it? talk for forever." Yeah. But there is one final question that I love to ask all of my guests. Sure. So I'm going to ask you this one now, Justine. What are your three non-negotiables? That allow you to live your life today happy joyous and free
1: three non-negotiables um definitely i need to move so it's you know there is exercise a healthy fit lifestyle has to be in my structure of my every day every second day in some capacity it has to be there um i don't put myself in situations where I don't feel comfortable. That's a non-negotiable. That's been like that since since rehab. And that doesn't necessarily mean I'm not pushing my own boundaries because I know I need to. Mm. But I only, I don't associate with people for too long that don't make me feel like I'm in a good space. This is great. This is fascinating.
0: Can you elaborate a little bit more? Like what about family members so, say say you had mm. a triggering family member and you know mm-hmm. you need to show up like how do you manage and control that I show up yeah. and then I
1: leave when I need to leave mm. so that's been the same since rehab I've been really solid on that if I don't feel good in an environment and I know it's you know in the beginning it was a matter of safety because mm. I might want to drink but now it's that's it's still safety because it's safety of my mental health mm. um, if these people don't aren't positive in my energy I'll tolerate it for a short period of time and clearly there are some situations that you have to be in we can't pick and choose everybody that comes into our lives but I don't necessarily build strong relationships with those people or be in their in their space for too long
0: and what's some languaging that you might use to get out of say a barbecue that you've you've you've, you've had your
1: time and it's time to leave <laughs> I've I've got something to do. I've got clients. I've got to, I've got to move. I'm tired. I'm just not feeling great, or I just need to leave. You know, I'm not going to be. Um, yeah, you know, you'll just inclined. be direct about it. Yeah, re- relatively direct. I'm not going to say. Not, I'm not going to say I don't feel good in your energy. I will clearly, you know, I don't think that that's necessarily the right thing to do. <laughs> but Be a little more tactful. Yeah, I'm, I'm leaving because it's time for me to leave. Yeah. You know, it's it's, it's time for truth. me to leave. I can go to a party where everybody's drinking when everyone's starting to get super hammered. I go because not because I feel triggered but because I just don't enjoy that anymore. Mm. Yeah, same. Um, and the other thing, I think the other non-negotiable for me is that I and maybe this is part of my age now as well I've got to the that place where I need to make choices that work for me um clearly I have other people that I need to take into consideration but what I choose to do if it's authentic to me it's the right thing so I don't really care what other people think
0: (laughs) that sounds freeing
1: it's the most free that I think I've ever felt, especially in the last few years. And maybe that is, once again, that maybe does come down to my age a little bit as well. But my choices are my choices. And when I'm tapping into who I really am, that's when I'm the happiest and really that's all that matters. Mm. So, um, you know, I I feel now more like I did when I was maybe 17, 18 and ready to take on the world but with a crap load more wisdom so I feel like I've had my I'm coming having my eat, pray love moments at the moment <laughs> but it's it's true it's like I it doesn't at the end of the day it does not matter what whether that's drinking too you know why don't I drink because I choose not to drink because for me it's a it's a death sentence mm. what do you think about that I really don't care because I'm blissfully happy yeah and everyone around me is has my kids have got a mum that's present that's that's there that is in the, the best capacity to be able to look after and nurture them. My family have me as, you know, I'm here, I'm alive. My friends have me switched on and able to help them. I don't – what is the downfall mm. of anything that I do?
0: Mm. Well, there isn't there isn't really – and the only people that are probably going to challenge you on that are people that themselves yeah. have an unhealthy relationship with alcohol yeah. and it makes them uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, yeah. But I think, you know, even, even for me – that whole mentality of what I do is my choice and if I'm being authentic I'm being happy Um, whether it's alcohol or not alcohol related that's that's really important that's that keeps me on track because I know when I'm really true to that my mental health is at its best
0: mm. Mm. yeah that's awesome so we've got health and fitness, boundaries and authenticity. Yeah. They're brilliant. Thank
1: yeah. you so much for sharing.
0: <laughs> Justine, if anyone wants to find out more mm-hmm. about you, check you out, where should they go?
1: Um, probably um, my website, which is Justinwitchurch.com.au, but also um, Instagram. Instagram, I'm still there. <laughs> I'm there. I show up on Instagram probably a lot more than Facebook um, yeah, and in my bio, there's lots of links to different things that I've done there too. Amazing. And I'm holding a, I'm holding a retreat in Bali, so a sober retreat. So Incredible. That's, yeah, yeah, at the end of July. So um, there's still spots available if you want to jump on. But it's my first sober retreat. It's something that I definitely want to continue to do. That sounds super exciting. I'm, I'm up for a Bali trip any day <laughs> of the year. Incredible stuff.
0: Justine, we say here on Behind the Smile that when we recover loudly, no one needs suffer in silence. So thank mm-hmm. you so, so much for being You're such welcome. a powerful advocate for change and your story and everything that you do. Thank you. Thank you for having me.